I'm going to have a conversation with Lawrence Wiener. Lawrence Wiener emerged as an important member of the group of conceptual artists that began working in New York in the mid-1960s. I'm interested in the early part of Lawrence's career, but even before he became an artist, how he managed to meet and become familiar with the figures of abstract expressionism that were living and working in New York during the 50s and early 60s. In other words, what his relationship was to this prior generation of significant artists. Okay, so there, there you are. You're in New York. Yes. When did you first realize that there were these people called the Abstract Expressionists? Uh, I sort of discovered the Abstract Expressionists the same way as everybody else. Uh, through popular culture. It was the strange thing of Jack the Dripper. Right. Where okay. you saw it in the magazine, people were laughing or making jokes. Uh, it didn't look funny. That's where it all sort of started. And then it registered back a little bit. And I was working on the docks when I was quite young. And it was 8 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning. But sometimes they would finish work at 2 because the ship was empty. And I found bars. I had grown up in jazz bars and in mm -hmm. other places. Uh, and I found this bar where the abstract expressionists went. I was very involved in civil rights and, and politics. So, in fact, there were people there, lawyers and things, who knew me. When Lawrence Wiener encountered the abstract expressionists around 1956 or so, he did so during a time of tremendous social and political upheaval in the United States. This was the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, when African Americans struggled to attain equality in all walks of life with white citizens in the United States. You met these people and they brought you in and I began to go and look at things and got interested as much as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And they were very nice to me. But remember, in those days, anybody who was involved in any kind of civil rights and things was all part of a large group. It all tied in with normal rebellion. But remember, uh, abstract expressionism didn't look like rebellion to me. Being outside was quite normal. This was your culture. Imagine, if you will, the condition of being an artist who believes that his or her job is to disaffirm the dominant culture within which they live and work. This was the situation of the abstract expressionists during and immediately after World War II. By the time Lawrence Wiener encounters the abstract expressionists in New York in the mid to late 1950s, they have already become part of the establishment of art. They seem to be part of the problem rather than outside of the culture that they wish to critique. I do remember going up to like French and Company for a Barnett Newman show. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let you in. You were not who they wanted there. Eventually, somebody would come along and bring you mm -hmm. in. They were not happy. They were not trying to spread this culture. They were looking to make it into a viable economic thing. A lot of them were quite anxious about this, particularly Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman and Clifford Still. But for them, they felt... Still, if you had this one-to-one -one encounter with the work of art, you would understand what they were trying to say. For them, it was really a way to recover what they imagined was the original impetus for making this work, 
individual artist in the studio with no support in society, railing against the values that that society had in terms of art and culture. Well, remember, abstract expressionism as well is a celebration of the new world culture. Hmm. It's a total celebration. It's one-on-one with a canvas, one-on-one with a piece of clay. They had been through the Second World War. This was the beginning of building a new culture, Hmm. and they were not going to bend. Were you visiting some of these figures in, in their studio? You didn't visit. You sometimes followed somebody home to the place where everybody went after the bar closed. Okay. You couldn't make it across by yourself. It was a little too dangerous. Okay. It was a time when people were driving in from the suburbs and the white people were coming in with chains and, and beating up on everybody because of the Vietnam War. Mm, okay. So everybody hung out in coffee shops unless some artist said, let's go to the studio. Did you spend much time in Cedar Tavern? Yes. What was that like? I don't know. Uh, I sat at the bar most of the time. Uh, (laughs) They let me in. That's about all I know. (laughs) In the Cedar, I was more of a voyeur. Mm -hmm. As well as a participant, yes, I spoke, and, and obviously somebody would listen to me every once in a while. But in Max's, you you forced yourself sometimes to go out because there would be people out there and you really wanted to keep talking about what you were trying to do. Mm -hmm. There was no other forum. Barnett Newman did this. Everybody did that. You sort of got your tuchas out and everything else. It was not unpleasant. It was people you basically liked, even if you were fighting with them. I'm interested, um, trying to, to get to how um, the presence of earlier generations impacted on your generation of artists. Let's say that uh, the major thing that attracted me to the American experience of bringing art into, in that time, the 20th century, was the fact that there was a kind of a celebration of the fact that you might be unloading ships or working on unloading trucks, but you had a core and a soul. And that was learnt by the abstract expressionists, by the European artists who had to leave. From there, you didn't lose your masculinity. And that's the one thing probably that I learnt from them. You have to remember there was a generosity going on at the time. There was not a camaraderie. Because, in fact, yes, you were another part of a society. But it came up recently in, in Britain when I was in Middlesbrough. Somebody said, what's it, you know, the difference of growing up in New York City? Oh, it must have made a difference. And I realized what the difference was. It wasn't that you were more sophisticated. Is that amongst eight or nine million people, it's a hell of a lot easier to find somebody who agrees with you uh, right. <laughs> than in a small uh. place. It was a special time because people began to understand quantum yeah. mechanics and they began mm-hmm. to understand there was a problem with Aristotle. Lawrence Wiener raises some very interesting and profound issues. What is he talking about here? Well, in one sense, quantum mechanics gives us a new picture of the world where the indeterminacy of things that we took for granted all of a sudden becomes the major feature of our understanding of the world. We don't know what things are, where they are, and they transform from one thing into the other. 
The problem with Aristotle is that Aristotle is the one who develops this hierarchical sequence of categories of matter and thought, separating everything in the world into neat little packages. Recently, I discovered that you had given a presentation at the club. Yes, and, we were invited. And I'd like we to so hear proud. a little bit about this. Seth was invited to bring us, and, and it was this Doug is Hubler, Seth Siegelow. Yes, yeah. Seth Siegelow, mm-hmm. uh, and Douglas Hubler, and Rick Bartholomew. Mm-hmm. I just remember that we went in and we were spreading, and none of the people on the panel agreed with each other about what constituted art, so we were certainly not mm-hmm. spreading a party line. But we were spreading another logic, another way of looking at the making of art. It didn't go down very well with the people that were there. That was the first time I began to see people acting the way I had seen them act in Europe in 63, where they were protecting their turf. In New York, there was no turf. There weren't that many places. I remember my first show... Uh, that night, uh, Bob Ryman had his first show. People were leading because Chamberlain had come up and he was taking people from one to the other because you were not even getting that many people. So there was not a turf protection. You were really quite happy to put the work out. You were hoping you could make money. Mm. Was 57th but Street still really a Then it a was nexus. really something. 57th Street okay. that was, and Madison Avenue. We're talking the mid nineteen, mid to late nineteen sixties, or yeah, just, mid to late nineteen sixties. Yeah. And then there was the Fuller Building. That's right. That's the building that Betty Parsons was yeah. in, and um, that yeah. was the basic center. Okay. But mm. remember, that was something else. That was like mm. you, you almost didn't even aspire to it because you didn't think they'd have you. It was out of reach. By the mid nineteen sixties, Lawrence was busy producing small, irregularly shaped monochromes, generally dark gray or black. They were part of a general trend of reduction of all of the things about painting that would seem to be unnecessary being removed. When did you start to realize that painting wasn't going to be something that you were necessarily going to follow? I never realized that. Uh huh. So, so it so, just got to a point just, in my existence mm-hmm. which uh, it was not capable of dealing with the aspects of making art that interested me. Okay. I don't see anything wrong with it. I never saw mm-hmm. what I did as the end of painting. Nothing to do with it. The first book of sculpture that I put out had to do with painterly things. That was my gesture towards the fact that I'm not against you, but I ain't you. Okay, and when... um, (laughs) There is a difference, and that's something that most people don't quite understand with each succeeding aspirations of younger Mm -hmm. artists or musicians. Mm -hmm. You're not against something, it's just ain't you. That's really important, because this is really the core of what I want to get at here. I can't tell anybody how to make art. I can tell you what art is supposed to do. An art is supposed to change the logic structure of the people who see it. Not force them. It's supposed to be presentational. Whammy presentational, but presentational. Yeah. That when it, you want to participate, you have to change some of your basic logic right. structures. Yeah. You cannot accept lead and silver being equal in order to make a certain sculpture work. 
and at the same time accept racism. Mm. It's not possible. Okay. This is why I'm yeah. saying it's an, an anti-Aristotelian problem. Why can't you make art without a hierarchy? And why can't you be the best person making non-hierarchical art? Right. It's an aspiration. Why not? Yes. It, That's my know, aspiration. This is very similar to what people like Newman and Rothko discussed when they were talking about what they hoped for their art. That the first thing was the point of encounter. That you had to allow yourself, open yourself up to that experience and let the art take over that experience for that moment. If you can't do that, the art fails or you are not receiving the art in a way that is going to make it a significant experience for you. It'll just be like any other kind of commodity. It's the Ad Reinhardt if you turn off the the lights and you walk through and you trip over it as sculpture. Yes. <laughs> and right. when you wait, when yeah. you see works of mine and some works of some of my colleagues, they really you trip over them because you cannot even accept their existence without accepting some of its logic pattern. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu/itunesu.